Sometimes I walk into a rumination and I have a problem where there's just nothing to, to build off of, like from a behind-the-scenes perspective. Sometimes I walk into a rumination where there's too much behind-the-scenes material for the rumination, and I just get overwhelmed by it, and swamped by it to the point where it all just kind of dissolves into noise. And at a certain point, I just can't keep up. This is a good example of that one. There are interviews... There are, uh, there's, there's the special, there's tons of featurettes on it. There's four separate commentary tracks. Guys, I try to do the best I can to do my job. I'm not watching this film four times. I'm not spending eight hours watching this film, okay? Just want to be clear about that. God, what do we even say about this film? Uh, let's start by saying I don't like it. Let's get that out front. So this is going to be more of an outsider's perspective thing. You know, I'm not super into it. I don't think it's awesome. It is a very interestingly done film. It is certainly a very well-constructed film. And it accomplishes its overall tone and approach very well. Doesn't mean I like it. This would be a classic example of coffee. Funnily enough, Peter Jackson was actually going to work on this film, but he pulled away for Lord of the Rings because, you know... He was kind of working on that at the time. Actually, a lot of directors were a hand of this. But no, instead it ended up going to Fincher. David Fincher. He's, uh... I don't think I've ever liked anything he's ever made. <laughs> don't mistake me. Uh, back when he worked at Lucasfilms on several of the, the works there, uh, I guess it was director of photography and stuff like that. You know, good work there. But, I mean, as a director, I look at his films and I go, Yeah, no. Like, let's see. So first we've got Alien 3. Now, I know that a lot of people like to crap on Alien 3, but I did a, a small revisit of Alien 3 thanks to a friend of mine not too awful long ago. I'd say, gosh, just a few months ago at this point. And while I can't necessarily fault his directorial style, I can absolutely fault the script for having many, many issues. So, no thank you. And then we go to Seven, which is another one of those... You know, films that, yeah, okay, it's probably a well-done film. It's hard for me to gauge because, blah. Then we have The Game. That one actually amused me, if I'm being completely honest. But, nevertheless, still had the same general tone. And then we have this. Which leads me to that idea. He has a unique talent for pulling a sort of dirty uncomfortable vibe into his work. And I want to stress the way I use that word uncomfortable, because it's not about things being grimy. You know, you use the word dirty and people take it a lot of different ways. What I mean is that you look at his works and it just makes you kind of go, Ugh. and it's just kind of unpleasant to perceive, you know? And, it, and I say that because it hits several specific societal notes of, of discomfort, for lack of a better way to put it. And it's pretty regular throughout the throughout the course of basically every work he's ever done. I'd say one of the only exceptions is the game, and even the game kind of had a, a tint of that going to it, especially with you know the way they were doing. Well, I don't want to spoil the game. Point being, so that's definitely here. There's a lot of bleak and gloom in this film to the point where, and I wish I was making this up. I had to pause periodically and just kind of go and play some Mega Man or something to degauze from the film. So, no judgment, but no thank you. This, of course, leads me to the very first thought I had about the film. Why did this bomb? This film made $41 million net worldwide. Now, if that's not significant, allow me to make it clearer that uh, the budget was actually larger than what they made domestic. 
as in if not for the worldwide market, they would have actually lost money on this film. And when you consider some certain other things, which usually don't go into that, it's entirely possible this film made even less than $41 million. Now, $41 million sounds like a lot of money, and that's because it is. But when it comes to the Hollywood machine, especially given the time and certain other factors, yeah, no, that, that's a bomb. That is not a film that has done very well. But why? If you were to li- This film is literally listed as one of the greatest films of all time. I cannot even... I literally don't know anybody personally who just has not at least watched this or can quote it at will. At least within, like, friend circles, you know? Like, I know... I'm saying this wrong. I know individual people who are not into the film. But I don't know any group of people who are not into the film. Like, if I was to include, say, my immediate family who lives, you know, about 40 minutes that way, I can name one person in that group who loves this film and can quote it at will, and so forth and so on, right? And I'm sure this is true for a lot of you guys as well. And... Well, it, 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 this just is a trend this year. We just keep covering films with the Princess Bride effect, including Princess Bride, which we're covering at some point this year. I'm not sure when. I haven't set up the calendar as of recording this. We just keep covering this. I will say this. Uh, the first thought I had, well, actually more like the third thought I had walking into this, was, is this deliberately a remake of the concept of The Great Gatsby? I don't actually know. I wasn't able to find any material on it. It was... I actually didn't have that thought. I'm lying. I didn't have that thought until about, say, two-thirds of the way through the film. And then it just sort of clicked for me, and I was just like, huh. This is kind of The Great Gatsby, isn't it? I mean, obviously it's not direct. It is a proper reimagination of the idea. I'm not trying to accuse anything of anything. It's just, huh. Now, I know this is based on the book. No, I didn't read the book. No, I never will. But... I shouldn't say never. I have no intention of ever doing so. But I do see this... <laughs> the bones of Gatsby throughout most of this. Let's let's jump into the film proper. So, um... Before we go any further, the first thing that happens, very, very first thing in the film, is it starts off with some kind of decent music and then immediately shifts into... While going through something... Well, it, it's the it's the fear note or whatever, the L synapse, I forget what it's called, of the brain. But point being, it's trying to make something look somewhat unpleasant. It's trying to get that kind of vibe of that kind of slightly uncomfortable thing I already mentioned right up front and right out the window. Uh, and that, of course, leads immediately to, you know, where he's talking, he's like, hey, and he puts the gun, and he's got the gun, and he's, you know, flashback, right, okay. So we've got a framing device, neat. I kind of wish the framing device wasn't there, but they do try to push some of the meta-narrative every every now and again in the film. For the record, I'm not into the meta-narrative, so I'm just going to kind of the rest of it out of existence, if that's okay with you guys. Let's also get something else out of the way. One of the things that I will absolutely praise this film for is being front-loaded. I suppose I should actually praise the book for this, but the, the fact remains, the story is front-loaded. Now, obviously, something like a film is going to be front-loaded because you write the film before you start actually filming the film. But I wanted to use this as one of the better examples of front-loaded storytelling because I've had that question several times. What's the difference between front-loaded and back-loaded? Front-loaded means you know how it's going to end and you plan everything out before you actually start writing it. So you have the framework and the bones so you can do things like foreshadowing and build-up 
and character arcs, and you can kind of show things as they're going to go. This also leads to Babylon 5 effect. This film definitely has Babylon 5 effect, which is specifically when you go through and you look at it, and not only is it like, oh, because you know what's going on now, but this is critical. Because of the added uh, perspective, what you're seeing now is something different than when you saw last time. The same scene, viewed from a different angle, comes up with something different. So, that is this film in a nutshell, and I can think of several other films like that as well, which I will not name here because I'm not here to spoil unrelated works. But I'm not going to sit here and list every single example of foreshadowing, because if I did, I'd be here all day. There is a lot of them. I do wonder how many people caught the blips of him appearing during the early parts of the film, because they were really, really obvious. But then again, I'm sitting here, you know, staring at the monitor and with, with my notebook in hand, trying to pay very careful attention to things, so... You know, maybe I'm a little bit uh, ready to watch that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know if that was actually a thing in theaters. I never saw this film in theaters, obviously. <laughs> I was part of the problem. I mean, I never would have. It's it's not my kind of film. Maybe that's why it didn't sell well. But then again, it's a very popular film. So I don't know. I don't know. Princess Bride Effect. Moving on. So we have things very doom and gloom and dead. Everything's dead. Because this is the tone of the overall work. Very, very dark. Um, losing all hope is freedom, is one of the quotes that's put in there. And, of course, what the narrator, Jack, what the narrator does as he's wandering through the film is he massively abuses and misuses a system of support for entirely selfish needs. In fact, what really makes this overt is when Marla finally starts showing up he absolutely hates her for doing the exact same thing that he's doing. Yeah. This also kind of leads to the idea of his own self-loathing on the matter. The fact that he hates himself to some extent or another for what he is doing to these people that she is now exemplifying. He now sees himself from an external perspective and it's not something he likes to look at. Not that I'm saying Helena Bonham Carter isn't good to look at. That's not the point. You're taking it in the wrong direction. No, the point is that this is something that he considers unpleasant, just like, let's be honest, most other aspects of his life and his personality. This then leads me to Chloe. This was probably the crux moment of the film for me, as strange as that may sound. Oh, yeah. Periodically, I've covered works that a lot of other people have covered, and I'm always a little nervous whenever I do so, because I, I don't have anything new to add to the conversation. So I decided to do what I usually do and chuck all that out the window and just talk about whatever occurs to me to talk about. This is a rumination, not a review, after all. So, what does it occur to me to talk about? Chloe. Chloe is a woman who is dying. Literally dying. And she's sort of come to accept that, but at the same time, she would like a few things before she goes. Makes sense. This is actually something that is brought up much later on in the film. What would you like to do? Paint a self-portrait. What would you like to do? Build a house. Remember that? Much later in the film. What would you like to do before you die? So, what would she like to do before she dies? Well, she's like to have sex. No judgment. None at all. Actually, she doesn't look unattractive, so I'm not really sure what the issue is there. But, what really struck me about that scene is not her or her needs. It is that in a moment of vulnerability, she opened up to something she actually felt which is a major theme of this work overall, that a lot of people just 
hide behind this and don't actually share what they actually think and they actually mean constantly. Everyone does that. I mean, the, the main character is, is the most obvious example of that. But everyone does that to some extent or another. Everyone in this film, I should say, constantly tries to say what they're supposed to say or accepts what they should accept or whatever. And very, very few people are actually really honest with themselves like she is up on that stage, which is a very dangerous and brave thing to do. And you know what she gets for that? Ignored. No one responds to her, and she is shuffled off stage in mild embarrassment. That is apathy. And that is this film in a nutshell. I don't mean to say that it's a film that was made apathetically. As I mentioned earlier, a huge amount of work and effort and craft were put into making this film. No, I mean the overall theme that I pull from this work is that idea of apathy. Why bother? Who cares? There's other aspects of this, probably far more overt aspects. Marla walking out into traffic without actually caring about whether she gets hit, or taking the tons of Xanax, that, would be, that is to say Alprazolam, which is an antidepressant for those of you not aware of, which is also a, used as a sleeping pill. Yeah. Um, there's the obvious, you know, let's, let's just burn it all down, just fight me, punch me. You know, there are various aspects of it, but the Chloe thing is what really struck me the most. Probably because I just want to slug the narrator right in his stupid face for his abuse of a system entirely designed to try and help people who desperately need help in a system whose very existence degenerates people who want to seek out and reach others for help. Disenfranchisement is probably a better word for a lot of what this film tends to personify. How many of these people join Project Mayhem? or Fight Club in general, just because they've got nothing else, and they just don't care anymore. Or at least, they haven't found anything to care about. I'd like to call that the core. We all put up with the little stuff. You know, we pay bills, and we eat, and we drink, and we sleep, and we stretch, and we do our exercises, or maybe we don't. You know, we keep up with the news, we go to work. We do all this little stuff, but it's the big stuff, the core, that's what actually matters. Well, what is the core? Well, it depends on you. Every single individual has their own different thing or things that really matter to them, actually matter to them. And in those, those are the things that allow you to have a reason to keep bothering with everything else, right? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's just your life is actually good and you want to be a part of it. Maybe it's your religion. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's your friends. It can be a lot of things and no judgment. We all have different cores. But what we see in this film is a lot of people without cores. Which brings me right back to Chloe and that support group. Because those people are suffering from something. One thing or another, but they are suffering from something. Hence the various support groups. And they are opening themselves up in a way that is actually scarier and more dangerous than you'd actually think to what are effectively total strangers just to try and get some, exactly what it says on the tin, support that can help them to deal with the little things and maybe find a big thing, a real thing, that they can then actually have to have a reason to bother. But no. And the total apathy to Chloe's plight made me start thinking, how many of the other people are at that support group because they just are there because? In his case, he's doing it in order to try and find some kind of emotional acceptance of anything. Like, I don't even know how to describe it because it's actually, frankly, a pretty alien thought to me. You know, he's an emotion vampire, effectively. 
and it also helps him sleep because he's an incredibly messed up person to a level that I couldn't even begin to cognate, I suppose is the point. She's there because it's cheaper than a movie and it has free coffee. Now, I'd say that's apathy, but actually that's just normal, isn't it? No, really. If you were given a choice between sitting down and paying 20 bucks, which you may or may not have, uh, let's say every day, every evening, let's say you had to pay $20 to have entertainment, or you could go to something that's basically free and sit down and just type in lowrunner.com. Yes, I am basically saying that this is the same thing as watching YouTube. No judgment, once again. That's not really the point, isn't it? No, the point is that it's something to do that doesn't cost, not really, other than time and might pass away some of the time idly in a way that's not really enjoyable, but it's better than nothing. And that if that's not an accurate description of my show, I got I, I don't know what else to say to that one. So I don't really have any judgment of my viewers. I mean, of Marla. I'm not calling you guys Marla. No, what I, I gotta say, though, as much as it sounds like I'm making fun of Marla, I have astonishingly more sympathy for her than for the narrator. He is there in an active method to just mess with the system because, screw you, she's there because she's bored. Bit of a gap. Also, she very, very clearly does actually need help, and I will credit Helena Bonham Carter for playing someone who clearly is actually a wounded and vulnerable soul who needs someone or someones who actually care about her in order to start her on the rather long process of being able to be a better person. I don't mean like she's a bad person, I mean she is a damaged person. By the way, Marla's probably my second favorite character in this work. Probably shows. So Chloe... Yeah. Now I want to talk about perspectives. I sure hope you're not expecting a point-by-point -point review of this film, because I, I just skipped over a lot of scenes because I don't have anything to say about them. This is Rumination. For those of you new to the show, welcome. This is me being boring and talking. The idea is, let's say we just both watched the film, and now we're sitting down to chat about it. This is the stuff that occurred to me to chat about. Sense me? Because the next thing that occurs to me is he talks about single-serving friends. And he talks about single-serving food and single-serving hotels as he's running around doing his job. He says this as if it's this really bad thing. Like it's just part of the overall uh, despondent tone of the work. I disagree completely. I have had a lot of just random interactions with people on planes, on buses, at stops, at the grocery store. All sorts of things. That's actually kind of a normal thing. When I used to work in uh, fast food, you'd see people come through and you'd chat with them briefly and then they'd move on and you'd never see them again. There's this one woman, I'll never forget her. She, uh, I was on a bus going from Pennsylvania and on the way down she just kind of sat next to me. We just chatted the whole trip. It was a long trip because we didn't have a stopover until uh, Indianapolis. And we just chatted the whole time. We got off the bus. Bye. Bye. And that was the end of it. I've, ne I've never seen her since, and I never will. But that's not a bad thing. It's ships passing in the night. It's kind of an awesome aspect of social interaction, in my opinion. While it doesn't have a lot of depth to it, it is nevertheless two people who are connecting on some level or another, usually over some kind of shared interests. If nothing else, the fact that we're both stuck on this stupid plane and we're crammed into these uncomfortable seats can serve as a shared interest point. And the shared interest points between people is one of those things I find absolutely fascinating. 
and it's a truly interesting aspect of human study for me. Which then leads to these awesome conversations, which I remember. There's another. I was going to Vegas recently to visit my folks, and there's a woman on one of the plane trips there, which I remember her too. She made fun of me, <laughs> but it's okay. I don't actually mind. It was a good trip. It was a good conversation. We even did this thing where she was like playing Star Wars trivia on like a, an app or something, and she asked me to help her out with it. And it was this whole thing. It was fun. These are what I would consider to be good things. He considers them to be bad things. And this is actually my point right here. You have something. Someone sees it from this angle and it looks to be one thing. Someone sees it from another angle and it looks to be something entirely different. Perspective. So. <clears throat> moving on. <sighs> Looking at my nose. Sorry, we're just kind of rushing through here for a little bit. Um... <laughs> oh, by the way, there's also this bit where he prays that the airplane crashes instead of having to commit suicide. I thought about commenting on that. But ultimately, there's not a lot to say there, not as much as I would originally think. I was going to talk about suicidal thoughts and the gradient between I'm ready to slowly starve, starve myself to death versus... Oh no, I wish something bad would happen to me. And there's there is a there's a gradient there and there's a big topic and blah 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 blah. Oh yeah, by the way, YouTube algorithm, suicide. Thanks. But what really caught me was this is just another aspect of apathy. Just like what was happening happening with Marla. She has the power to commit suicide. So does he. He has the resources and availability to end his life. Now he could just buy a gun. With his record, no issues. Take a few weeks, get a gun, done. He doesn't. Because he doesn't actually want to die, he just has no core, no reason to bother. So instead he just prays for it to end, but not really. It's just, it's another thing to think about. This then leads to uh, Lose Bar, the first fight, some ad-living. Oh, God, why the ear, man? And, uh... Oh, yeah, Lou's Bar also had some ad-libbing, too. Sorry. And that also leads to the big explanation of who and what Tyler is. This is when the movie gets a little bit weird and starts to go a little fourth-wally. It's a good sequence of scenes, because what it is is... The two of them are sharing the same conversation. The, the one sequence of dialogue is split up between the two. Wah-wah. But the way they bounce back and forth between it is awesome. And the way they just kind of showcase and discuss it is also awesome. It's good stuff. But it also does emphasize something. All of the things that Tyler is doing, well, that's just trolling. I've heard some people call Tyler an anarchist. I disagree with this completely. An anarchist is a specific slight slice of a political theorem. This guy's just a dick. And that is Tyler in a nutshell. He's just a dick. He's just an asshole who violates rule zero constantly. So, they move into the house. By the way, I've actually lived in worse than that place, which makes me sad to say that, but it's still true. And we do later see he ends up fighting <clears throat> Tyler, and people start coming over like, hey, what the heck's he all about? And that then leads to the creation of Fight Club. I've already kind of given the theory about why it spreads, but I do have to admit it's funny. They actually show this in the film. They show him beating up himself later. Actually do this twice. 
So we can kind of get the idea of what's happening, why people will be like, what the heck is he doing, you know? We also kind of find ourselves wondering exactly how much control one side has over the other, and, and obvious aid references are obvious, but the performance really is excellent. Especially with Helena Barham Carter, who starts to have the relationship with Tyler, which then leads to some problems, and we're about 50 minutes into the film already, if you believe it. I mentioned earlier, no, I didn't mention it, actually, excuse me. I mentioned earlier that I wasn't going to talk about the foreshadowing bits. There's two foreshadowing bits I really have to share, because I really like both of them. Foreshadowing bit number one. When he gets on the payphone to call Tyler, nothing happens. Puts the phone down, walks away, phone rings. He goes to pick it up, camera zooms in. It's almost too obvious, but granted, I'm again, I'm, I'm sitting here with the note paying attention. This phone does not accept incoming calls. The second bit of foreshadowing is actually funnier. There's this bit where Tyler and uh, Marla are having wild, loud sex, like you do. And the phone rings. Narrator picks it up. The sex sounds instantly go quiet, like that. That was a good touch. I did like that. And then some music plays that's straight out of the Zerg from StarCraft. No, seriously, it sounds like the exact same thing. I'm not even sure what's up with that. They talk a little bit about 90s here. This generation, Generation X, I believe, is the technical term. Uh, no war, no depression, nothing to establish a cultural identity on. Which I suppose could be argued to be the point of the film in general. There's also this bit where he convinces Lou, the actual Lou, exactly how he, he should be allowed to stay there. Which is suitably horrific, admittedly. But it also helps to show something. Because what he was doing was showing to his people what he was willing to go through for his cause. He was manning up and saying, this is how far I'm willing to go. How far are you willing to go? And he succeeds, which probably shouldn't have worked. Which then leads to the cult sequence of the film. Now, I actually don't have much to say about this. I could go through in a blow-by-blow, blow, and I do plan to. But this is the cult part of the film, because what he does is almost textbook how you brainwash and manipulate people into doing your bidding. Bidding. First, he gives them a light assignment. Go start a fight with a stranger and lose it. Okay. Uh, this also leads to him blackmailing his boss and beating himself up. Totally willing to do so. The bit where he's, he says, "You give me the money. This guy, you'll never have to see me again." Oh nope, you called for security. They're here. Oh God, thank you. Please stop beating me. Never underestimate someone who has nothing to lose. Anywho, then, uh, God, so you have to be subservient. You have to be willing to do harm yourself. Then you have to be willing to cause damage to others. Then you have to start trolling society. Um, and then there's this bit where he goes after Raymond, the guy who wanted to be the vet. Got to break him down in order to bring him back up again. You, you got to destroy the the house in order to fix the termite situation, which is a line of thinking that I'm not sure I hundred percent agree with. Of course, as we've already established, Tyler's a dick, so I'm not sure I believe any of his particular philosophies. Then you have to the applicants start showing up, and you got to break them down and yell at them, and they've got to deal with the abuse for three days. Then when they join in, they also have to continue to be broken down and abused, and they have to then follow that policy to new people. 
each new person then becomes someone who is part of the system that is being built here. Then there's a constant reinforcement of the mindset. You have no names. You have no identity. You are worthless. You are crap. And in probably one of the subtler touches of just how messed up this is in the film, at first we have Tyler uh, um, repeating this mantra to them. You know, you are the excrement of society. Sometime later in the film, some random dude who is part of Project Mayhem is saying the exact same words to the people just roaming around the thing. This is straight-up culty brainwashing. Then they actually start doing domestic terrorism. <laughs> then we start to see how loyal these people have started to become. You know, what, what would you like to do before you die scene? This... This leads to just showing how absolutely messed up this is. I mentioned the no names thing. And the culty thing gets worse because we only gain names in death. It is only in death that we actually earn our names. His name is Robert Paulson. By the way, Bob was my second favorite character in this film. He was. I haven't talked about him that much because I wanted to save it for here. Bob was a bodybuilder who juiced. He cheated. He paid for it. He lost everything. He got broken down. He found this support group, started kind of working through it. Didn't find his core. How do I know that? Because he joined Fight Club. The only people who joined Fight Club are the disenfranchised. So he ends up joining, and as a consequence, finds his core. Believes in the cause. Does what he can. La 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 la. This poor, disheveled man needed help. Instead, what he got was recruited, used, and then thrown away. And that is Project Mayhem in a nutshell. Treating its people exactly the same, that, the, the same way that corporations treat consumers. You are trash to be utilized until you are no longer of use, and then tossed. I liked Bob. He was a... It's probably because the film spent more time on him. Because, you know, that's, that's probably the thing that really helps to flesh him out. I imagine just about any of the members of Project Mayhem would, would be a similarly sympathetic character. But because we got to see his story and see his progression... He's, he's one of the first characters we've seen in the whole film. I think he's the third, if you want to stretch it, character we see in the entire film. And he ends up dead with uh, a hole in his head. So, it takes until the one hour, 50 minute mark for the big twist to happen. Surprise! Tyler is the narrator, narrator is the Tyler. I've been thinking about this for a while. One of the things that I've noticed a lot of fiction, a lot of fiction for decades, is that they, they get too hung up on the idea of there has to be a twist. There has to be some big revelation. Otherwise, what's even the point? Now, I disagree with that, obviously, but I have fallen into that same mindset as a writer, uh, both professionally and amateurishly. Like, you know, when I've actually taught classes, I found myself cycling back into that mentality and been like, no, I'm teaching, I'm teaching people not to do that, come on. It's just such a thing. There needs to be that hook, there needs to be that twist. And I think, I think the biggest reason why is because a really good twist is so satisfying. 
especially because a really good twist almost guarantees you're going to go back and re-watch slash play slash read whatever it is, right? And now you get extra enjoyment. This works economically. You know, we have better sales and better word of mouth. This works personally. Now we have something we can enjoy more. And that is really the, the highlight and the true hallmark of Babylon 5 effect and the idea of front-loaded storytelling. Because if you do a really good twist and you plan that sucker out, it's just a moment of... <sighs> What's interesting about this film is most films, in, especially films specifically, when they do the twist, there's usually a <laughs> scene where everything is just smashed right into your face. And then it's like, ah. Oh. In this film, it's actually more of a descent. It's a slide. Even without knowing, I imagine most people figured out what was going on pretty much as soon as he started doing his plane hopping. If they didn't figure it out there, certainly the fact when he went to you know start talking to people and they start telling him things, including calling him Mr. Durden, that's pretty much officially the moment. But then the film keeps unveiling its twist as it slowly starts to show us piece by piece more of it. It's an interesting approach. I'm curious if that was a decision for the film or something that carried over from the books. But it helps because, as weird as this may sound, it shows that the, the focus is not the twist itself. The twist is in service of the story. One thing I've said many, 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 many times is if you want to do something in your work, it should be a natural follow-through of the work. It should not be the focus of the work. Because usually speaking, if you go into a story saying, I'm going to make a big twist, it turns out worse than if you go into a story saying, I'm going to make this great story about such and such, and then it's going to be revealed this. That shift of focus almost always uh, results in better fiction. And I feel that's what's happening here. The story w wasn't really about the twist. The twist was part of the story. Excellent stuff. Oh, yeah, by the way, my third favorite bit of foreshadowing. The yin-yang table from earlier. Cute. So, uh, he tries Marla, and he doesn't explain himself to her at all. I notice he doesn't explain himself to anyone at any point in time. Hey, there's another person in me. I, I guess that does sound a little bit kooky, but, I mean, this guy was functionally having a massive, massive mental and emotional breakdown, so that does make sense. We also see a lot of the scenes from previous to the movie from the perspective of what was actually happening. Um, the hand one, burning his own hand, is probably the one that really stuck with me the most. And then he tries to reach out to the police because, of course, he recruited the cops. Did you notice the classism? This is probably most on display when they're at the the reception and the politician guy goes off to the side, I think it's a commissioner or something, and they pull him off and say, we, we are the working men. He doesn't say that, but that's what he says. We're the working men. We're the ones who are underneath your feet. Do not screw with us. Right? Because this is very classist. I, I, I'm, I, I'm saying that wrong. This is very focused on the class divide. There we go. That's a better way to put that. Almost everyone, in fact, I'm going to take that back, everyone who joins Project Mayhem, Mayhem is someone who has a, you know, a blue-collar job. Someone who works for a living, right? Someone who just does ordinary work, who is a pencil pusher or a, um, a manager, not a manager, a frontline you know, worker on the register, or someone who works as a cop or you know, whatever. You don't see a lot of the upper echelons of society joining this group. Now... We could infer several things from that. As I've already said before, only the disenfranchised, the people who don't have a core, are the people who join Project Mayhem, right? At least hypothetically. I would say at least the majority of people do that. So then you could say logically, ah, oh, naturally, the people who are wealthy and who are in charge, they have cores, right? 
Well, not necessarily. Well, they might. They might have a family or a career or something that helps to keep them going forward. What is more likely, based on the tone of the film, is that what they have is the sunk cost fallacy. Now, the sunk cost fallacy is actually pretty complex of a concept, and I've heard some people bandy about in places where it doesn't count. You know, if you... uh, if you are building a building and it's more expensive than you thought it would be and you continue to spend money on it in order to get the building built, that's not sunk cost fallacy. That's you didn't budget properly. There's a difference, right? Bad analogy, but I've heard people misuse it in almost exactly that same way. But in this case, the idea is they have put so much of themselves into their career, into their jobs, and their lives, into their IKEA mindset that they can't possibly lose all that. They can't possibly stand to go and just beat up some people on the street or join some kind of societal pseudo-anarchist thing. No, dude, I, I got three payments left on that car. Are you kidding me? Sunk cost fallacy, by the way, the simplest way to describe it, in my opinion, is about presuming worth where there is none. In short, because I have wasted so much time or effort or focus on something, ergo, it has to have value, even when there is, and this is important, when there's proof that there is not value, when it is a failing enterprise, or when it is something that has is fallen apart, or you shouldn't keep doing, or whatever, right? That's some cost fallacy, although there's actually five elements of it, and I don't want to get into that. <sighs> don't get me talking about economics. I'll keep going for hours. So, this then leads to the big fight with Tyler. This is probably my favorite scene of the film because it's extremely creative and clever. There's little details. There's this bit where Tyler sits down, facing away from the narrator, just looking off to the thing. He says, no, not that one. Because obviously he sees what the narrator sees, even though he's... And he kind of starts teleporting at that point, just kind of appearing wherever he needs to, because at that why why bother having physicality? He doesn't have a body. He could just be wherever. We also see periodically security camera footage, which shows what's actually happening. Nice trick, by the way. But uh, most people automatically presume if you capture something on videotape, that's what really happened. So anytime when you introduce something like an unreliable narrator, like this film, having something shown on videotape is a great way to show that's the real picture, and that's exactly what they use it for here. He is dragging himself along, he is throwing himself down the stairs, etc. He is beating himself up. It's just an interesting thought to think about, but let's just move on from that. But they, like I said, they do some great and creative work with this. It's an extremely advanced technical masterpiece, and I just want to give tons of praise to everyone involved in it. So, that's basically the end of the film. He shoots himself, convincing Tyler that Tyler has just committed suicide, so Tyler is now gone. Um, He tends the others off, Marla's there, they hold hands, everything blows up. The end. (laughs) I hope he's got some money scrolled away, because his life is over, if you think about it. Holy crap. I don't have much else to say about this film. It was a fascinating study and an interesting thing to go through. A little long, I think, but at the same time, the pacing was excellent enough that I never really noticed the length. I think the only reason I noticed how long this film is is because I had to take breaks periodically because the bleakness was getting to me. You know, when you start getting into severe natures of depression and disassociativeness, uh, yeah, that's, that's not fun. I do think that the cast choice was basically perfect. I do think that they absolutely nailed where they were going with this. And I do think that if you haven't seen this film and you're at least curious, that you absolutely should. 
With all that said, I hope you have enjoyed my random wasting of time. I'll see you next time.